Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Monday, October 3rd, 2022. It's been 3,138 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 221 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth because the truth matters. Due to the extreme amount of kinetic warfare activity on multiple fronts, today's episode will focus on covering the axes across Ukraine. We can talk about economics and geopolitics another time. So let's get started like we always do with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, Ukraine's relaunched counteroffensive in Kherson is potentially larger than the initial push that started on August 27th and has gained as much as 20 kilometers in the past 36 hours. We believe Russian defensive lines are in collapse across a wide area. Second, we maintain our assessment that Russia is incapable of responding simultaneously to three counteroffensives in Luhansk, Kharkiv, and Kherson. Russian commanders must channel decisions through Russian President Vladimir Putin, who has no military training and has likely become a bottleneck. Third, we maintain that using tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield is highly unlikely, as it would require striking what the Kremlin believes is Russian soil, and Russian forces are incapable of fighting in a conventional environment, let alone a CBRN setting. That's chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear. Fourth, we assess that if a Russian force of company size or larger surrenders in northern Kherson, it will create a cascade of surrendering Russian troops. The defensive lines in northern Kherson are at high risk of complete collapse. Fifth, we assess that mass surrenders could become a logistical problem for Ukraine, which could overwhelm the ongoing counteroffensive. Sixth, our assessment was correct that the Russian people's dissatisfaction with the war in Ukraine and mobilization would be suppressed by the Russian equivalent of a mission-accomplished celebration in Moscow. Our assessment that it would be short-lived was also correct. Less than 24 hours after declaring the annexation of Luhansk, Donetsk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia, the Kremlin and Putin regime are facing the worst discontent since the, quote, special military operation began. Seventh, we maintain Russia's mobilization efforts are ineffective due to corruption, a lack of preparation, violation of the social contract with the Russian people, and conscripts being sent en masse to Ukraine without vital equipment or training. Eighth, we maintain that the next two to six days are critical as the Kremlin reveals its border intentions. Ninth, 
we maintain that we are in the mutually assured destruction instability paradox due to irresponsible language from the Kremlin, looming decisions from Moscow leadership, and the deteriorating kinetic warfare situation for Russian troops in Ukraine. And finally, we maintain our assessment that the Russian military in Ukraine is combat-destroyed and has no meaningful way to respond to the ongoing and accelerating collapse on multiple fronts. It was reported the Russian 58th Combined Arms Army is now also combat-destroyed. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. Ukraine maintained tight operational security in Kherson, while the Russian information space was in complete panic. Ukraine restarted the Kherson counteroffensive in the early morning hours of October 1st, after one of the war's largest artillery barrages west of the Dnipro. Multiple Russian sources reported dozens of armored vehicles supported by light infantry, artillery, and the Ukrainian Air Force were engaged in heavy fighting. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky confirmed that Arkhangelsk was liberated. NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, suggested there was fighting in Novopetrivka. President Zelensky also reported that Mirolyubivka was liberated, and the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense shared video of Ukrainian forces raising the flag over the debris that was once a Ukrainian town. We had previously assessed that the town was under Ukrainian control. The president's announcement provided final confirmation. Ukraine advanced across a 30-kilometer-wide front from northern Kherson, moving as far as 20 kilometers in the last 36 to 48 hours. NASA firms shows thermal anomalies in Novovoskresensk, where fighting has been intermittently reported through September. Ukrainian forces advanced from Trudolyubivka through Lyubimivka to Bilyayivka. Pro-Russian sources reported that Bilyayivka was under Ukrainian control. In another column, Ukrainian troops advanced through Kreshchenivka, liberating the town as we reported on October 1st. Russian sources claim that Shevchenkivka was liberated, and we assess that Ukrainka is contested. In another column, Ukrainian troops advanced through Kreshchenivka, liberating the town as we reported on October 1st. Russian sources claim that Shevchenkivka was liberated, and we assess that Ukrainka is contested. Ukraine took control of the critical T-403 highway, a Russian ground line of communication. It's called a G-lock. It's like a supply line. Zolotobalka was liberated on October 1st. Pictures show that Ukrainian troops have liberated Mikhailivka, and there are reports of Ukrainian troops in Novo-Oleksandrivka. Pro-Russian sources claimed that Ukrainian forces briefly paused in Novo-Oleksandrivka before advancing through Havrilivka and are engaged in heavy fighting for control of the critical supply hub town of Dudchane. Local residents in Havrilivka reported that Ukrainian troops were in the town. NASA firms indicated heat anomalies in Milova, the second of three critical supply and transit hubs for Russian forces east of the Inulets River. Dudchene is a so-called last-mile logistics point for rations, potable water, and light weapons ammunition. The loss of the garrison, supplies, and transit hub will be a critical blow for Russian troops north and west. Milova provides a secondary G-lock to Velika Oleksandrivka, likely keeping the Russian positions from Davidibrid to Novopetrivka supplied. 
the loss of Milova would potentially cut off most of the supplies to thousands of Russian troops from the Inulets River bridgehead to Novopetrivka. A retreat will be very challenging across open fields which are starting to turn to mud while under Ukrainian fire control. The final supply node is in Bereslav, across from Novokokhovka. If Ukraine can capture this final critical junction, Russian forces have almost no options to continue to supply their forces east of the 2207 highway and west of the Dnipro. Now, Russian forces between Milova and Chikolov aren't at risk of encirclement at this time, but Russian President Vladimir Putin's no-retreat order, which some units violated today, could become very problematic if Ukrainian forces continue to move at their current pace of 20 kilometers a day. Russian forces in this area are demoralized, cut off from their leadership, and have been dealing with supply issues for various needs for weeks. One Russian unit appealed for close air support through social media, unable to contact anyone in the Russian command structure. Pro-Russian sources reported that the world lost contact with the defending troops in Kreshchenivka about three hours before pictures showed Ukrainian forces controlled the town. We cannot determine if the Russian troops retreated or fought to the last man. Russian combat engineers were able to make a partial repair to the Antonovsky Bridge in Kherson, with seven Russian vehicles crossing the Dnipro River. Earlier in the day, a larger Russian truck wasn't so lucky, very nearly falling into the river. Rockets fired by HIMARS hit Russian troop concentrations and ammunition supplies in Darivka, Novokakhovka, and Holopristan on the south bank of the Dnipro. Operational Command South reported 330 fire missions were done in Kherson and Mykolaiv by Ukrainian ground forces, and a Russian Ka-52 alligator attack helicopter was shot down. Some assessment here. Russian defensive lines are in collapse, and the depth of Russian defensive structures is almost certainly overstated. We had previously assessed that if Ukraine could make a breakthrough and overrun Russian artillery positions, they would be able to move quickly along hard-surfaced roads. We believe that if even one Russian company surrenders without fighting, it will cause a ripple effect across the front, speeding up the collapse. From Milova, Novokakhovka would be just on the ragged edge of tube artillery range and well within the range of multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, for Grad and Smirch rockets. Bringing Novokakhovka under tubed and rocket artillery fire control would enable rockets fired by HIMARS to target other locations and reduce the amount of inventory being consumed. Russian forces are in trouble. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. The situation at the Zaporizhia Nuclear Power Plant, or ZNPP, is unchanged, with the status of Ihor Murashov, director general of ZNPP, still unknown after he was taken away by Russian occupation officials on September 30th. There weren't any reports of rocket attacks or shelling in Nikopol at the time of recording. The city of Zaporizhia, however, was hit by multiple rockets targeting the city center. Civilian infrastructure was destroyed and there were casualties, 
according to Anatoly Kurtiev, spokesperson for the Zaporizhia City Council. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southern Zaporizhia, where there was only sporadic artillery fire from the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border to Huliapola to Orihiv. In southwest Donetsk, the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR militia, did not make any claims about ground fighting or successes on the battlefield. Ukrainian forces launched 281 fire missions on the occupied territories of the Donetsk Oblast. Officials claim that elements of the DNR First Army Corps, supported by the Russian Federation Armed Forces, or RFAF, destroyed four artillery, quote, installations and eight armored and automotive vehicles. The only fighting reported was an advance by the First Army Corps of the DNR into Pervomaisky from Pisky. Pro-Russian sources claimed that the DNR has control of half of Pervomaisky. Still, the lack of any combat videos from the DNR, which love showing the grisly deaths of Ukrainian troops, indicates the report is inaccurate. There was a renewed push toward the village of Nevelsky, which was unsuccessful. A G-lock from Nevelsky leads to the bridges of the destroyed E-50 ring road, which splits Pisky and Pervomaisky. However, the village is surrounded by cratered fields full of mines, and any advance will be extremely difficult. Let's move on to northeast Donetsk. The remainder of northeast Donetsk still under Russian occupation is a lost cause. Continued offensive operations by Russian troops are, in our assessment, pointless. Russian forces attempt to advance on Spirna and Vimka without success. We can't identify any strategic value in the continued attempts to advance on Siversk. Russian forces have no hope of creating an encirclement or setting conditions for a larger offensive, even with the arrival of untrained conscripts, which, regrettably, will only serve to slow down the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Fighting continued on the southern edge of Bakhmutska, led by private military company or PMC Wagner Group, with no change in the situation. PMC Wagner made a renewed attempt to break through Ukrainian defense along the highway east of Bakhmut, the southern side of Zaitseve, and an advance into Odradivka. None of the attacks were successful. The 1st Army Corps of the DNR, 3rd Brigade, appears to have taken the day off. Near Lehman, a previously undocumented crash site for a Russian Su-34 was found by Ukrainian forces. Apparently, if a plane crashes in the woods and no one is around to hear it, it does not make a sound. In Luhansk, Ukrainian forces continued to make significant gains after the liberation of Lehman, which exposed Russian defensive lines to Kremina. The Zhedebets River did not become a new defensive line, with Ukrainian forces taking control of the east bank. Ukrainian troops are in Novolyubivka and Nevsky. Russian sources report Ukraine severed the P-66 highway, a critical G-lock to Svatov, by advancing into Chervonopopivka and Zitlivka. Ukrainian forces are operating in the forests northwest and west of Kremina, but have not entered the town. Russian mill bloggers complained about the lack of prepared defenses in Kremina. A video from Russian state media showed Russian troops in the town, but was intertwined with video of defenses located on the edge of Severodonetsk, 18 kilometers away. The video clips shot in Kremina showed a destroyed Russian tank 
and Russian forces retreating from the city. A salient is starting to form around Kremina, and Ukrainian forces will likely seek to bypass the Russian defenses and create a technical encirclement to force another retreat. Two of the three GLOCs have been severed, and if Kremina were to fall, it would be challenging for Russian forces to hold Svatov, Lysychansk, Rubizhne, and Severodonetsk. Our assessment here is the same as it was yesterday. We believe that Ukraine will continue to advance rapidly and that Russian forces will struggle to establish a new line of defense. The next line will likely run from Svatov to Kremina to Severodonetsk to Zolote, if Russian forces can stabilize the situation or pull in viable reserves. The untrained Mobix Russia is set to deploy in the coming weeks will do little more than slow a Ukrainian advance. If Russian forces can't hold Kremina, the following line of defense would fall back to Starobilsk. Ukrainian forces are basically unwinding Russia's advance from March to July. In our assessment, the capture of Lysychansk and Severodonetsk will be a priority. See, from Lysychansk, Ukrainian forces don't have to cross the Seversky Donetsk to advance toward Hirskozolote and Popazna, and holding Severodonetsk enables Ukraine to establish fire control over a wide area. Let's move on to the Kharkiv region. Russian sources claimed that Ukraine had advanced to Kislivka, where heavy fighting continued. The town is on the P-7 highway, a critical Russian G-lock, about 35 kilometers from Svatov in Luhansk. There was no information on the status of Liman Pershi, which was under attack by Ukrainian forces on October 1st. Russian sources claimed that fighting had moved into Borova, and the situation was challenging for Russian troops. Shortly after finishing today's report, photos showed Ukrainian airborne troops in Borova, and there was video of Ukrainian troops moving unimpeded through Sheikivka to the east of Borova and Pidliman. Ukrainian forces are now within 30 to 35 kilometers of Svatov, and the final G-lock to the Russian forces' critical transit, supply, and command and control hub. Borova was also the last strong point of the original Putin line east of the Oskil River. On the Russian front, a report from La Repubblica claimed that NATO had warned Allied nations that the Russian ballistic missile submarine K-329 Bilgorod was operating in the Arctic Ocean and was armed with the Poseidon nuclear missile. Look, despite the fear-creating headline, Russian ballistic submarines regularly operate in the Arctic Ocean and the power of the Poseidon nuclear missile, which allegedly can create tidal waves up to a thousand meters high, that's about 3,800 feet for U.S. Americans, is entirely theoretical. We do have some late-breaking news. The Borova City Council is reporting that Borova, not just the town, the entire Romada, is back in Ukrainian hands. Svatov is in trouble. Havrilivka in Kherson is also officially liberated and flying the Ukrainian flag once again. Less than an hour ago, Rafael Grossi, the Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, reported that Ihor Murshov, the Director General of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, had been released from Russian custody and returned to his family. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. 
You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.